Welcome to Talk About Poetry, where working poets gather to discuss poems they like, are impressed by, annoyed by, or otherwise engaged by. This is the second of two podcasts on the extraordinary and highly honored poet Gwendolyn Brooks, a poet and teacher with a wide effect on American arts, from the Pulitzer Prize to a U.S. postage stamp, to becoming the namesake of at least nine and probably more institutions, from grammar schools to cultural centers. She was the first black author to win the Pulitzer and the first black woman to hold the position of poetry consultant to the Library of Congress, in effect, U.S. Poet Laureate. She is unique with a strong commitment to racial identity and equality and a mastery, an absolute mastery of poetic techniques. I'm Bob Hers, publisher and editor of Nine Mile Magazine, which you can find online at ninemile.org, of the Nine Mile Talk About Poetry blog, which you can also find online, and of the Nine Mile Press, publisher of books by David St. John, James Cervantes, Michael Burkhart, Sam Pereira, and many others. Nine Mile Books and Magazine are the sponsors of this podcast. Our other Talk About Poetry participants here today at the table, and I invite them to introduce themselves. We also have a special guest with us who is part of the first program that we did earlier. Uh, it's very important to this discussion. Koresh Ali Lansana, former director of the Gwendolyn Brooks Center for Black Literature and Creative Writing at Chicago State University. Georgia? Hi, Bob. I'm Georgia Popoff. I'm a poet living in Syracuse and teaching in community here, author of three collections of poetry. The most recent is Psalter, the Agnostics Book of Common Curiosities that came out in 2015 with Tigerbark Press. And our guest, Koresh Ali Lansana, and I have co-authored a book on poetry in public classrooms called Our Difficult Sunlight, and we are now working on a book of Essays on Miss Brooks, and that's going to be the Whiskey of Our Discontent coming out in 2017. Now, that's, is that the centennial? It's her centennial year, right? Mm -hmm. Centennial yeah. year, wonderful. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Steve? I'm Steve Kusisto, poet, essayist, memoirist, blogger. I teach at Syracuse University. I'm the author of two collections of poetry, uh, Only Bread, Only Light, and Letters to Borges, uh, both available from Copper Canyon Press and also of the memoirs, Planet of the Blind, and Eavesdropping. And also, not to leave this out, co-editor and co-publisher of Nine Mile Books, Nine Mile Press, Nine Mile Magazine, Nine Mile Blog, etc. Georgia, I wonder if you might introduce our, our guest. Oh, it's my pleasure to introduce my colleague and dear friend and co-author, Koresh Ali Lansana. We call him Q. Uh, originally from Enid, Oklahoma, he's been based in Chicago for more than 20 years teaching in college, working in community. He's an incredible community activist and activist for the world of poetry. He's the author of almost countless number of books and editor of anthologies. The most recent Breakbeats Poets came out last year to critical acclaim and is selling like hotcakes, I hear. And um, a truly gifted poet and uh, protege of Gwendolyn Brooks. Q, welcome to the table. It's a pleasure to be here. Q, you were a protege, but also a student and, uh, and a colleague right. from Miss Brooks. What was it like to be to have her as your mentor? Well, I don't know if I would ever, I don't know that I would claim colleague. Okay. No, no, that, I don't know that I could say that. But um, I was her last, I am her last protege. Uh, I had the great uh, privilege uh, and honor 
uh, to be taken under her wing for the last 11 years of her life. Um, and I was uh, one of 11 students in the last uh, college level uh, workshop she taught uh, before she passed at Chicago State University. I still have uh, a folder of poems bleeding to this day <laughs> from her copious edits. Most of those poems um, are in my first book of poetry, uh, Southside Rain, uh, which she also blurbed. Um, being in class with Ms. Brooks was amazing. I, uh, I have a short poem, an, an elegy uh, uh, for her or to her where I, I write that uh, she ignited mine riots and watched us loot and ransack, right? And so she would drop, uh, drop an idea uh, on the table and sit back and rub her hands together with this, you know, <laughs> this grin, you know, this crazy grin on her face and watch us just sort of scrap at, you know, uh, at, those, at, at this idea and, and battle and just loved every moment of it. Just sit back and watched us and laughed at us and, and relished in what she'd uh, created. She loved working with young people. Um, and I was very honored um, to be uh, among those, those 11 students in that class and the only a uh, student in that class who's gone on to a successful career in poetry and academia. Um, and uh, I'm very honored to have been, you know, guided by her um, as a young man, as a young father at the time. Um, she used to talk to me uh, badly, often badly, about how I carried my, 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 my oldest son like he was a football. You know, you, you can't get Oklahoma out of the boy. But um, in, in addition to, uh, you know. As long as you don't punt. Right. Well, yeah. yeah no, or spike no. the baby. He, he's 18 now. Now I'm ready to punt. <laughs> but then he was young. Um, but she she's, remains uh, her influence uh, on my life, on my work, certainly. Uh, on uh, she's, she's largely responsible for why I ended up at NYU, uh, why I went to, to grad school at all. Um, she's responsible for my going to Chicago State and completing my, my bachelor's degree. Um, so she's, she's had an indelible impact on my life and, and continues to do so. My, my youngest son is named Brooks. And so every day she's, she's in my house every day. She's in mm -hmm. my memory. She's on my tongue. Mm -hmm. uh, she's on my pen every day. Wonderful testimony. You say your, your poems bled red. Right. I, I take it that she was a close reader? Oh, my goodness. Um... <laughs> Yes. Um, Miss Brooks believed in precision and exactness, right? And so um, she shared stories that uh, she often uh, labored for three months over a single word in a poem, you know, before she let that poem go um, into, a, into any sort of public sphere. Um, you know, it, she worked on her great book-length poem in the Mecca for 30 years, you know, uh, before it really saw the light of day. Um, she believed in precision. She believed in the, the notion um, that our job is to attempt to speak our truths, you know, in the ways in which we see them um, and to find the language that most exactly and precisely replicates those emotions, those that vision, uh, that image, that observation, those truths. Um, that's what we do. And that's when that's our job as poets. Um, and that's the way she taught us. That's uh, certainly the way that she taught me. Um, and so I attempt to do that every time I'm on the page. Uh, 
and working with the page. A wonderful testimony, Georgia. Yeah, I did. the thing about the the precision, and this is what the, this is what hearing stories about her for twenty years of our friendship, mm -hmm. and looking at that folder of poems, and reading her work, and immersing in the the uh, precision of her line, and her stanza, and her choice. Make, made me become more of a poet like that, mm. you know, to worry every single word to the bone. And as an editor for many years, what I see is so many people in this rush to get the poem out the door and start working on the next one. Yeah. And not, not a, a work ethic or an interest in the craft uh, to that minute detail. Right. Uh, you know, like approaching it like an astrophysicist right. instead of, you know, somebody who's cooking at McDonald's or something. You know, the, that that every word has to earn its right. That's right. Into the poem. That's right. And the willingness to take the time to let the poem tell mm -hmm. us what it needs, what it needs what it next. Needs. That's right. But people are just being satisfied with an adequate mm -hmm. poem and shoving it out the door. The same five poems— to five or seven different publishers at the same time and, you know, it, let me get you know, tenure. It's also important to <laughs> note for those who aren't poets who might be listening that the more precise you can be with your language, the more power the poem has. Oh, yeah. Right. You know, so it's not just precision qua precision. It's about muscularity. Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah, and, ton and tonal quality, you know, like the tone of the muscle of the poem as well as the music. You know yep. that, that, that there's 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 a muscle structure yep. to a good poem. Absolutely. You know that everything it, it, it hinges on the bone, but then the muscle is what what fills it out. Right. And uh, it it takes an exactitude just as a good musician. Right. Or, uh, you know, somebody like an Olympic Olympic athlete, you know, is attending to every single piece of sinew in their body to accomplish what they need to do. She attends to it all of the sinew. Right. And encouraged other people to do so. Absolutely. And just her example does that for me. Yeah. I was thinking that when I started writing, the best of my teachers, um, and what I really still value him for today, was that he cleared a space for me and for others. Mm -hmm. So I started writing in the 60s as an undergraduate. And, you know, you're in school, you're taking all these classes. So you're reading Whitman and Dickinson sure. and, you know, Yeats and yeah. everybody else. And uh, the notion that you could also write became a really important thing. And that particular teacher was saying, oh, no, look, here's a space where you too can write. Mm -hmm. Right? You're not Yeats, you're different. Mm -hmm. Right. You're not Merwin, you're different. But here's your space. And I right. thought that was... That was an acknowledgement. I think I heard that in what you just yeah, said. Yes, I, so. I would agree with that. I, so. I want to say something to that, too. In my teaching, I work with young writers regularly, you know, and uh, with the Young Authors Academy at the YMCA. We're very excited Downtown about that. Writers We're going to do a program on that pretty soon. But, yeah, yeah we, our fourth year, we've got some young writers for the program who are going to come to the studio and share their work. But I, we now, after three years, I said to my poets, uh, I'm tired of thinking up the, the prompts. You guys are now going to, you have full agency in this workshop. And so you're all going to take turns bringing in the prompts. Mm -hmm. What that has given me is the opportunity to write with them. So I'm developing this body of work coming out of nowhere where my, my brilliant young people are coming in with these amazing things that they throw on the table. 
and then they sit and rub their hands right. while we all get busy, right? There we go. And inevitably, when I read my piece, they'll go, oh, God, you're so good. And what I keep saying to them is, I am just another poet. This piece is just as new as yours. It's not done. I've just been doing it longer than you, and I'm here to share what I know. Right. But you are equally as important in your voice, and I think that's how Miss mm-hmm. Brooks went out into the world. Yeah, agreed. You know, that she she, she was... She could give you a light, but you had to you had to turn the light on. Right. You know. Well, that's a good way to open up the discussion and the focus of this particular program on Gwendolyn Brooks, which is to talk about some of her poems. Um, Georgia, I wonder if you might kick us off because you're in, in the middle of this uh, anthology and of, of essays, but you've also talked about categories to be able to think about the work or to think about the works uh, in toto. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how, what the categories might be and then how they work into this. And then please read some of her, uh, a, sure. a, a poem or two poems. Or... Well, Koresha and I were having a conversation about, okay, so if we're going to do an anthology of essays on Miss Brooks, how are we going to break it down? Because she had more impact than just on her, her poetic craft is certainly significant. But there was a, there's so much significance in everything she did. So we said, okay, we've got to narrow the field somehow. We've got to, we've mm-hmm. got to have, again, we've got to have the bones. And um, in our conversations, we came to five general categories that her work will fall into in their intention thematically uh, and, and uh the ultimate impact. And those five categories are those of race, class, gender, community, and then craft, you know, the, the prosody involved. And uh, that gave us, okay, we, we, when the invitation to submit abstracts went out, then somebody could pick one lens. You know, we would have, we had five lenses and there would be one that a, a person would take to create a, an abstract for an essay if, if chosen. And that seemed, th- those were the natural five categories that if we had to compartmentalize Gwendolyn Brooks' work over her many years, that seemed to fit well. Um, Q, do you have anything else to say about that? No, you did a, you did a fine job of, of detailing that. Um, I think that there will be certainly many essays and many writers that will explore, you know, a combination of those yes. sure. those two because right. it's kind of hard to necessarily just stick to one, right. you know? They intersect. They do very much intersect. Right. Yeah. Um, but it provides us, a, a, as editors of the book, a framework to at least not help, you know, lose our minds in totality. Because right? <laughs> there's precious little left it in both of them. true. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'd like to move right into some poems now and—, and one of the poems that's had the most impact on me is The Mother, which I believe was 1949 mm-hmm. was its publication date. So if we take into that historical uh, perspective that this is a poem written by a black woman, 1949, uh, well before Roe v. Wade, and then today we're still debating it. Um, I this for personal reasons and for many other reasons, this poem is the seminal piece that I carry with me from Gwendolyn Brooks. The Mother. Abortions will not let you forget. 
You remember the children you got that you did not get. The damp, small pulps of a little or with no hair. The singers and workers that never handled the air. You will never neglect or beat them or silence or buy with a sweet. You will never wind up the sucking thumb or scuttle off ghosts that come. You will never leave them, controlling your luscious sigh, return for a snack of them with gobbling mother eye. I have heard in the voices of the wind the voices of my dim, killed children. I have contracted, I have eased my dim deers at the breasts they could never suck. I have said, sweets, if I sinned, if I seized your luck and your lives from your unfinished reach, if I stole your births and your names, your straight baby tears and your games, your stilted or lovely loves, your tumults, your marriages, aches and your deaths, if I poisoned the beginnings of your breaths, believe that even in my deliberateness, I was not deliberate, though why should I whine? Wine that the crime was other than mine, since anyhow you are dead, or rather, or instead you were never made. But that too, I am afraid, is faulty. Oh, what shall I say? How is the truth to be said? You were born, you had body, you died. It is just that you never giggled or planned or cried. Believe me, I loved you all. Believe me, I knew you, though faintly, and I loved, I loved you all. Mm-hmm. A very powerful poem. It's interesting when you read it, right? If you see it on the page, you can see there's an actual very tight rhyme scheme mm-hmm. that goes on all the way through it. It's not all that audible to the ear. There's no clank in that. Right. It's not, these are not like Alexander Pope couplets, you know, right. boom, boom, boom. Right. They're just kind of floating through. Uh, Q, you told us a little bit about this poem before, that, that both sides and the discussion, mm-hmm. the ongoing intense national discussion on right. abortion, I had wanted to use parts of this? That's right. She'd been offered, she was offered for decades um, uh, monies from entities representing both sides of the debate, and she uh, she refused um, to allow um either side to use any language of the poem for political means. Um, so the poem only appeared in, uh, when reprinted in uh, academic journals um, or academic anthologies, I should say, and a few trade texts, a few trade publications. Um, but never, uh, she, she just, she, that's not why she wrote it. And that's what she told me that, you know, she wrote it to give voice to a, to a real human, a real woman, who who has to make these kinds of choices, right? The power of this for women cannot be summed up. That's right. The fact that she says, and this is where the argument is so important, you know, that you that you never forget, and she's talking about making the choice more than once, mm-hmm. and it, this is this is a very personal mirror for me. And uh, the the that ghost that that chorus of ghosts that is in this poem is uh, is a chorus that I've listened to mm-hmm. since 1971. Um, the the fact that she not only had the courage to write the poem, but if you take into consideration that she wrote the poem and it was published 20 years or. Yeah, mm. twenty plus years 20 from plus. between 
before uh, Roe v. Wade, and that she was an African-American woman talking about this, and this was not safe abortion. This was not, she, she brings to fact that, the, it, that there's always a critical and painful choice and that is never no one no woman who makes this choice makes it and doesn't remember. Right. It, and just the simplicity. The last time I had the honor of seeing another incredible influence on both Croatian myself and and many people, Miss Lucille Clifton, was at AWP. I think it's 2012. Was the panel last time I was in Chicago? In yeah. Chicago, yeah. right? And there was a panel of people reading, mm-hmm. and Lucille Clifton wrote. wrote read the mother and I had to leave the room afterwards mm-hmm. and go someplace to cry. The combination was just too much emotion for me. But the then the precision of the language, the internal rhyme, the rhyme that's buried and expunged in this poem. I guess I'm getting ready to write my essay finally. Mm-hmm. You know Yeah. <laughs> we support this. Well, I've been thinking about it, even writing the essay, I've been thinking over what I want to say about this poem for four or five years now. And the fact that, you know, buried in the womb of this poem are these rhymes that come out in unusual mm-hmm. places, but also perfectly, you know, they're in the, exactly the right place. Mm-hmm. And um, I have a friend who is just, I call him the scansion savant, and he has <laughs> done three different scans of this poem for accent, depending on how you want to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, how you look at it. And I know that she, I, I was, I know, Bob, you you got a recording from the Poetry Foundation, I think, online, and I've heard it recently, and the way she delivers it is just so matter-of-fact. Yep. It's so, it's almost flatlined. Yep. Like, the, she's so desensitized in some respect to the language, and the, so the language has even greater power. Right. I can't read it that way. Right. Because I bring in my own, like a, like any one of us, we we allow the reader the, to we write the poem and then we give it to them and then it's theirs, you know. And then they have. So when I read it, I'm bringing into my chorus, my Greek chorus in the back mm-hmm. of my experience. Mm-hmm. And we have it here. So let's listen to her do it. The mother, abortions will not let you. Forget. You remember the children you got that you did not get. The damp, small pulps with a little or with no hair. The singers and workers that never handled the air. You will never neglect or beat them or silence or buy with a sweet. You will never wind up the sucking thumb or scuttle off ghosts that come. You will never leave them controlling your luscious sigh. Return for a snack of them with gobbling mother eye. I have heard in the voices of the wind, the voices of my dim, killed children. I have contracted, I have eased my dim dears at the breasts they could never suck. I have said, sweets if I sinned, if I seized your luck and your lives from your unfinished reach. If I stole your births and your names, your straight baby tears, 
and your games. Your stilted or lovely loves, your tumult, your marriages, aches, and your deaths. If I poison the beginnings of your breaths, believe that even in my deliberateness I was not deliberate. Though why should I whine, whine that the crime is other than mine, since anyhow you are dead, or rather, or instead, you were never made. But that too, I am afraid, is faulty. What shall I say? How is the truth to be said? You were born, you had body, you died. It is just that you never giggled or planned or cried. Believe me, I loved you all. Believe me, I knew you, though faintly. And I loved, I loved you all. We hear how Miss Brooks did it. We heard how I did it. The way that Miss Clifton read that poem. Mm -hmm. And it was not, the, you know, just still mourning the loss of her dear friend. Right. And then soon after, we lost Miss Clifton. Right. And, you know, that, that, but the legacy for women in this poem, I, you know, I, I, I don't know how to impress upon uh, anyone how important this is in women's rights, this poem. George, I'm Wait, kind of taken by the by the by the end of the poem for for at least in the way I read it. Um, we were talking earlier about categories, mm -hmm. and so she struggles. It seems to me the speaker here is struggling with uh, categories at the end, and then finally just throwing them all over uh, in favor of saying, "Look, it, it it isn't that there was a crime. Uh, you're dead. No, rather instead you weren't made. No, that's not really quite what I mean. Uh, you were born. You had body. You died. Uh, you never. No, it's not quite that. It's that you never giggled. You never had right. this life. And then she then suddenly stands a break, and the conclusion is, no, it's not those things. It's that I loved you all. Yes. Mm -hmm. Very, very moving. I mean, very. Mm -hmm. That to me, that's where the punch comes in. Absolutely. Right? We're, we're, this is not a woman who's made up her mind. She's not. She's not uh, doctrinaire. She's not trying to push a propaganda line right. or anything else. She's dealing with what is this and how do I talk about this in real and human terms. That's and I think right. that's that's what moves me in this. That's and right. she's talking to the children. And I think <clears throat> that any woman who's gone through this experience, it's likely at least once we have a conversation with the the life that we did not bring to complete fruition and nurture through to right, it. right however far we could. And the desolation of that decision and the tenderness and the emptiness, I mean, it's all in there, you know? And, and I think that's, in the arguments, the, not to get overly political, but that's what the poem yeah, is, is, you know? <laughs> but in the arguments that, that this is some kind of, like, flagrant uh, dismissal of life that, that women who make this choice make, no, it's not. No. It, it's, a, it's a very difficult decision that has to do with quality of life and capacity to provide it. Right. And, you know, in some respects, uh, and. You don't not love that life. Yeah. Right. It's just in every instance, it's going to be an untenable situation that needs to be dealt with. You can see why both sides of that debate would find something That's in right. this. Right. Like That's right. Piece. Right. George, you have another one that you wanted to share with us. 
Well, Q and I had uh, included this poem in our Difficult Sunlight. Um, the Chicago Defender Sends a Man to Little Rock, oh. which is was important at the time, 1957. Just explain for the listeners about the Chicago Defender. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to ask Koresh to I'm going to move over to him for a minute. So the Chicago Defender, Koresh, would you give a little historical sure, perspective Sure. The Chicago Defender is, not, is the first African-American daily newspaper. Yeah. Not the first black newspaper, but the first black newspaper that published daily. Um, incredibly, and incredibly important. Incredibly important. Certainly was um, the real vehicle for the Great Migration. Uh, probably the primary, the primary vehicle uh, for engaging um, and interesting African Americans in the South to come north um, to participate in the Industrial Revolution. Very important in that regard historically. Um, and Miss Brooks, um, in addition to Links and Hughes for a time as well, both were con- regular contributors to the Defender. Which you know, think about that poetry, yeah, know, right? poetry in the newspaper, right? You know, the simple stories. Uh, Links and Hughes' just be simple stories. Um, saw light of day in the Chicago Defender. So, which is pretty remarkable in and of itself. So. Um, the integration um, of Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, fall 1957. Um, you know, the, the governor of Arkansas at that time, uh, his name's escaping me right now, did not, uh, did not comply with the federal mandate for integration um, of public schools. And so the Little Rock Nine, nine young people um, were the first uh, nine African-Americans to attempt to integrate Central High School, of course, with um, the National Guard, the Army, (laughs) and lots of uh, hundreds of uh, folks espousing hatred at these black folks attempting to enter high school, which they were now federally uh, able to, you know, to do so. Um, And so Miss Brooks um, followed uh, the news of uh, the Little Rock Nine and this integration, as as most of the nation did, uh, via television, via radio, via newspaper. Um, she did not actually attend. Uh, she did not actually go to Little Rock, but she imagined what uh, a likely educated African-American reporter from Chicago, from the Chicago Defender, might think on assignment going uh, down to quaint little Little Rock to cover such a significant event in American history. Um, and so the poem uh, gives birth to a construct she called verse journalism. Um, and she only uh, she only defined verse journalism um, very, very briefly in her first autobiography, uh, which is called Report from Part One. And she defines verse journalism as, quote, poet as all-seeing eye, close quote, and, quote, poet as fly on the wall, end quote. And that's it. That's all she gave us. And then she gave us this poem and said, here's the construct. And so what um, I attempted to do uh, with George's help in our difficult sunlight in our book of pedagogy is write an essay unpacking this definition um, in a way in which teachers and poets could 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 find a way to enter and then construct in this form. Um, but she considered this poem uh, her archetypal verse journalism poem. As a student and scholar of her work, 
I don't think, I think there's another poem that does it, but I can't argue with her because it's her construct. So there you go. Okay. So we know that this is all, as Q mentioned, this is a persona poem in the voice of this reporter who's writing from Little Rock, Arkansas, in, the, in one of the most significant civil rights moments of the 20th century. The Chicago Defender sends a man to Little Rock, fall 1957. In Little Rock, the people bear babes and comb and part their hair and watch the want ads put repair to roof and latch. While wheat toast burns, a woman waters multiferns. Time upholds or overturns the many tight and small concerns. In Little Rock, the people sing Sunday hymns like anything. Through Sunday pomp and polishing, and after testament and tunes, some soften Sunday afternoons with lemon tea and Lorna Dunes. I forecast and I believe come Christmas, Little Rock will cleave to Christmas tree and trifle, weave from laugh and tinsel texture fast. In Little Rock is baseball, barker roll, that hotness in July, the uniformed figures raw and implacable and not intellectual, batting the hotness or clawing the suffering dust. The open-air concert on the special twilight green when Beethoven is brutal or whispers to ladylike air. Blanket sitters are solemn as Johann troubles to lean to tell them what to mean. There is love, too, in Little Rock. Soft women softly opening themselves in kindness or pitying one's blindness, awaiting one's pleasure in azure glory with anguished rose at the root to wash away old semi-discomfitures. They reteach purple and unsullen blue, the wispy soils go, and uncertain half-havings have they clarified to shores. In Little Rock, they know not answering the telephone is a way of rejecting life, that it is our business to be bothered, is our business to cherish bores or boredom, be polite to lies and love and many-faceted fuzziness. I scratch my head, massage the hate I had. I blink across my prim and penciled pad. The saga I was sent for is not down, because there is a puzzle in this town. The biggest news I do not dare telegraph to the editor's chair. They are like people everywhere. The angry editor would reply in hundred herrings of why. And true, they are hurtling spittle, rock, garbage, and fruit in Little Rock. And I saw a coiling storm arrive on bright Madonnas and a scythe of men harassing brownish girls. The bows and barrettes in the curls and braids declined away from joy. I saw a bleeding brownish boy. The lariat lynch wish I deplored. The loveliest lynchy was our lord. So welcome to Ferguson. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Baltimore. It's a remarkable poem. Yeah, it is. It's a remarkable poem. And then again, those sounds interwoven, oh, yeah. you know, internal rhyme, near rhyme, driving the rhythm of it so that, you know, it never stops. But then the questioning, his questioning, you know, the speaker of, wait a minute. You know, his whole premise is is so challenged right. of the difference in humans. Right. And again, the poem moves forward via the details, right? The minutiae. The specificity mm -hmm. yeah. raises up the human lives. There you go. Right. Yeah. Really profoundly. Yeah. It's what uh, Tom Wolfe 
calls status life details. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And that's right. the poem is stitched out of them. That's right. And it makes just a wild quilt of human suffering. Yeah. Um, and hope. And hope. And simple moments. Right. You know, the Barca Lounge, that always cracks me mm-hmm. up. Every time I see it, the mm-hmm. Barca Lounge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, the poem, the poem does a whole bunch of things, but technically, I was kind of marveling at this while you were reading, you know, these closed rhymes, right? these are basically couplets all the way mm-hmm. through. Right. A couplet is a way of saying, look, the whole world is ever so nicely organized. Mm-hmm. Everything comes together. Did it to do, and it, and then it's did it to do, and then it's did it to do. So if you're looking at it, and 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 the rhythm is almost this sort of sing song. It's a lull. It's a lull. The people yeah. bear babes and comb and part their hair and yeah. watch want ads and right. put repair to roof and latch. You know, and then, but then she breaks it. Like, do it, like she'll she'll get to the point that she's almost going to resolve that same rhythm again, and she doesn't. Yeah. You know, so she's like constantly pulling the chain a little bit. I forecast and I believe. Come Christmas, little rock will cleave. I mean, and it's so that when you finally get to the end of this thing, it really is a right to the jaw. Yeah, oh yeah, just everything is so ordered, everything is so composed, everything is so put together until, right. here's what I saw, and oh, by the way, there's people like this everywhere. Boom. You know? Right. Yeah. Now, it's a, it's a very, and There's very also, powerful, again, yeah. going back to Auden, there's a little bit of that yeah. about suffering they were That's never right. wrong. That's right. Right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I would have thought of Victor, you know, one of the one of the ballad poems. Uh, she does, uh-huh. She, uh-huh. she, among her many other extraordinary talents were some of these ballad poems. Mm-hmm. What's the one that uh, Studs Terkel was was uh, uh, his his favorite? Was it poem? the Was it the Ballad of uh, Pearl May Lee? Maybe? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which is very just a straight old ballad. But yes, man, it, it is. Worse with every stanza. Yeah, it sure does. <laughs> <laughs> it so, sure does. But 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 to have to have the ability to do uh, we real cool. Right. Uh, on the one hand, this on the other mm-hmm. hand, and the total ballad on the other is just. Really, quite extraordinary. Yeah, and extraordinary and there's magic again. You know, uh, picking back in what uh, what what you said, Stephen, Bob, and Georgia, is that the minutia, that detail in which we are immersed into the world of Little Rock, makes us in part forget why we're even there, right? Right. Um, why the reporter's even there? It's so quaint and quiet and manicured, right? In the and the words and the structure of the poem represents that manicured. Uh, little minutia that we're we're emitting is like oh wait they're doing that <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that's happening yeah earlier program cue you were saying that that while we might see different voice or different emphasis from an earlier part of her career mm-hmm. to later the concerns were the same yeah does this oh, help yes. to make that argument like this yeah I, I i think so um you know and you know <laughs> i can read some of uh, a few of her latter works at a moment um to help support that uh, my point but yeah absolutely um from uh again georgia read the mother from her first book a street in bronzeville 1949 right <laughs> to to uh the chicago defender since i little rock which is a a, a late 50s early 60s poem Right. Um, yeah, I think that um, I think that her concerns are, are have, and have always been driven by uh, community, uh, by race, by gender, uh, by class. Right. Um, and I don't think that ever changes. And I don't think that 
even after Fisk. I don't personally believe, again, um, I believe that her, revo- her, her work, her early work is just as revolutionary as her latter work. I believe her latter work is as revolutionary as her earlier work. And I never, I didn't see a... F- I don't call it a fall off. I, I, I acknowledge as a yeah. scholar and a student of her work, a change yeah. um, in craft choices, um, but, uh, but certainly not to me any sort of uh, dumbing down. No, not at all. Yeah, um, couldn't and, agree more. Yeah. Yeah. And ironically, when I, when, I, um, when I confronted the major poet, uh, Georgia knows who this is, when I, when I confronted the major poet, uh, about uh, this writing in which he suggested that, or proposed, that she dumbed her work down under the influence of Don Ely, Haki Mahabudi, and Etheridge Knight. He said, oh, no, I didn't write that. Right. I was like, dude, it's in print. I yeah. have a copy of the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I have a friend who says that, that um, whenever anybody, he's a lawyer, he said, you know, I've never defended a guilty guy because whenever they tell me their story, mm-hmm. they're always innocent. They're always innocent. <laughs> said, it cannot right. be, he right. said, right. but you know, they're always innocent. Right. So memory reconstructs events in extraordinary <laughs> ways. Sure does. But then I have this document. <laughs> it's called a book. Yeah. And he wrote this. Oh dear. Oh well. <laughs> and, and and in the process did some damage. Right. Because it's a falsehood. Right. And it was a glib falsehood. Right. And glib falsehoods are easy for people to absorb, mm-hmm. um, and it cuts off critical thinking. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of important work there uh, that uh, right. that utterance allows f- uh, people to uh, say, "Oh, well, then I I'll just look at this first book." Right, right. Uh, Another of those categories of dismissal that we yeah, talked about earlier. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. That's true. Okay, I'd love That's to hear true. some of the later work. Sure. Okay. So. Um, I'll read this one first first, because it follows on the theme we're on, we've been on. Um, So one of her latter books is a book of poems called Children Coming Home, which she published herself. And actually, if you see uh, a copy of the book, it it looks like one of those old compositions. It's actually designed to look like one of those old black and white Mm -hmm. uh, speckled Mm -hmm. composition books. Um, And she wrote this poem um, excuse me, these books, um, I'm sorry, this book of poems uh, about working at Jenner Elementary School. Jenner Elementary School was the one of three schools that serviced the children of Cabrini-Green, the Cabrini-Green, the infamous Cabrini-Green housing projects yeah, yeah. in the middle of the city, which uh, were torn down two years ago. Um, and But she was there. She volunteered to go to Jenner on her own time, on her own dime, to work with the young people in this 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 housing project, um, and wrote these poems um, based on her experiences with these young people, predominantly, if not exclusively, African American, certainly predominantly. Um, you know, Cabrini, uh, perhaps the most glorified of the housing projects in the country. Um, Good Times was based there uh, with Norman Lear moving in for a week. Former mayor of Chicago, Jane Byrne, moved into the uh, Cabrini Green for a week to say, see, look, it's safe. Um, You know, certainly um, 
uh, Candyman, the horror movie, was was based and shot there. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's it's pretty. Me. It's a pretty disturbing <laughs> film, um, and certainly um, Cabrini Green as as all the housing projects all over the country, but certainly in Chicago, um, experience a share of pain and death and destruction um, and and, and uh, lostness. Uh, but also some some hope, right? Some joy. Uh, but it was tough to live there. I, I taught for eight years in a school around the corner from Jenner uh, called Manier uh, that serviced sort of the what would be the north part of Cabrini um, and the row houses um, on the northern part of Cabrini. I was there for eight years and watched that sort of experience the neighborhood sort of flipping from. Uh, projects to million dollar condos. It's a pretty, pretty devastating thing. But um, Ms. Brooks wrote this poem, all of the, uh, called The Cora Flower. All of the poems in this book have a persona and the persona is a child um, from the school. Um, so this is in the voice of a young girl named Tinsel Marie. And this is called The Cora Flower. Today I learned the cora flower grows high in the mountains of Itigoluba Besa, province Michi, population 39. Now I am coming home. This at least is real and what I know. It was restful learning nothing necessary. School is tiny vacation. At least you can sleep. At least you can think of love or feeling your boyfriend against you, which is not free from grief. But now it's real business. I am coming home. My mother will be screaming in an almost dirty dress. The crack is gone, so a man will be in the house. I must watch myself. I must not dare to sleep. Mm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's that just opens wave after wave of uh vistas. Yeah. Yeah. It also forces me to th- remember my compassion for so many students I've taught over the years. Mm-hmm. And not that we come to sleep. I had a young man when I was working at Middletown School District who was in this remedial remedial reading class. He was a junior or a senior. And I was there for a week teaching poetry. And he was sleeping every morning. And, and I, at first, I was very annoyed with his behavior until I started talking to him. And uh, I said, gee, really tired in the morning, huh? And he goes, yeah. Uh, I get out of school. And I go home and take a nap. And then I go to work at, uh, I think it was 7 o'clock, unloading boxes in a warehouse until 7 o'clock the next morning, or no, until 5 o'clock the next morning, then he'd get two hours of sleep and come to school. Wow. Um, Had to be at school at 7.30, and he was doing this because he was the father of a child, and he and his girlfriend were trying to save money to get an apartment and get married, and they were living, all living with her, with the the parents of the mother of his baby. And I realized he came to school to sleep. Right. You know, he was doing everything he could. He was being a real man, taking care of business. 
Right. He was just exhausted. Right. You know, so that poem just immediately puts his face in front of yeah. you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's only one of the students that, you know. Right. And yeah, one of the things, the, the, the entire book is remarkable, but what she does um, so powerfully here in the poem and throughout the book, one is 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 make manifest her her love and her concern for young people, number mm-hmm. one, right? And then number two, to, to give voice to this young girl's reality in a way um, that makes the situation of of Cabrini Green of housing projects of 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 low income neighborhoods very real by localizing them by making them human by giving giving her voice and it's not just a drive by on the expressway it's not thinking about lovers of the poor right, right. You know, lovers of the poor that that amazing poem about folks coming in from the suburbs to to give away money and Cabrini Green right um, that this is a She's not just she's she's not just a victim, right? But that there are levels and layers, um, and textures of her experience, and we would just assume drive by or just give her money and move on. Then we would take time to experience this young girl's truth as a human being, right, as a life. And that's what she does in Children Coming Home. It's so it's such a remarkable book of poems. Um, and again, amazing that it's something that she self-published, you know, um, in the 70s, early, late, uh, late, late 70s, early 80s. Could Tinsel, is Tinsel Marie a real person or is this a... It's a, Tinsel Marie, the name is a persona, but the work is a, a, the voice of someone who, with whom she, she uh, actually met and worked with at, at Jenner School, yeah. You can feel that coming through. I mean, even, yeah. the, even the gaps in the poem are... More right. like real life. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Those are. This is somebody's real story. Yeah, yeah. This is somebody's real story. There's so, also yeah, a social. Wait, wait. There's also a social archaeology. Yeah. In the mm-hmm. voice of the poem that is um, necessary. You know, I mean, one of the things we always talk about as poets, I think, is is this poem necessary? Does right. it really matter? Sure. Poems should be. It was it Ezra Pound said. Poems should be news that stays news. Right. right. Is the poem. Uh, necessary? Does it have some kind of life vitality to it? Does it say things in ways that have never been said before? Right. And this poem does all of those things, mm-hmm. as arguably all of her work does. But at the same time, think about, I mean, I'm just interested in what you would think about this, right? That when Gwendolyn Brooks was young, the south side of Chicago had civic centers, cultural centers, neighborhood. It had places where young people could gather and learn things. There were, you know, there were just sort of still the engines of civics mm-hmm. existed. But by the time you get Cabrini Green, you've got people kind of warehoused That's right. in spaces right. where yeah. their stories are isolated. That's right. There is no sort of civic space. Right. Uh, so the poem seems doubly important to me as mm-hmm. a political act, mm-hmm. right? That it's making up for the fact that there's, there's no... There's no gathering place anymore. Yeah, perhaps one of the... Fair to say? Yeah, no, it is. Certainly perhaps one of the um, failures of integration, right? Right. (laughs) Yeah, Um, absolutely. You know, what's interesting about the first part of what you said, I mean, I currently live in Bronzeville, which is the neighborhood in which she grew up. And Bronzeville uh, was the center of blues and jazz and cultural activity on the south side of Chicago um, from... In the 1900s to roughly the 1940s, 1950s, um, maybe 1950s. And um, 
But we also have to remember that at the same time, like I live around the corner from one of Louis Armstrong's homes, right? So um, the strip where that was the center of blues and jazz in Chicago is literally a couple blocks from where I live currently. But one of the things that we have to remember that you're absolutely correct that all this civic life and arts and culture were happening, but it was still, we still lived in black codes at that time. Sure. Right. Oh, so it's no, still, yeah. so there's still only in this, this area of town where black folks could move freely. So, right. right. So, and that the black codes weren't really repealed when I want to say mid to late, Let's see. Native Son came out 30s. So I want to say somewhere in maybe the late 40s, 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yes, yes and yes, right? right. So, yeah. so at the same time that you're right that this life was there, folk black folks were still could still only go past 35th Street with a with a pass card, essentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was no yeah. American apartheid. Yep. You um, absolutely. So um, but then when when uh, when the '60s rolled around and this idea of of creating these projects and warehousing folks, poor folks, folks of color, um, and stacking them on top of one another, and they were warehousing. I mean, that's why yeah. I call their projects is experiment, yep. right? Yep. A failed experiment um, to really and see about how with the projects, with now integration, with uh, some some things being born and built, you know, the DuSable Museum of African American History and um, many of the, the Black cultural institutions, some of whom still exist from the Black Arts Movement era. Uh, but you still, uh, where Cabrini was located and where most of the projects were located and based on how folks were living there, had no idea, no inclination and no desire unless forced to even go to any of these cultural centers or institutions, so you were there. They're your cut world, off. Your world was there. They're that's cut, right. Yeah. That's exactly. That's right. exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. That so that child in the poem is not in a space where uh, she's going to encounter, right. uh, not necessarily encounter wise elders, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and be seen and heard. That's right. That's that's right. Yeah. And I mean, that's a part of the work yeah. of the poem. Yeah, yeah. 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 Thank you for that. Chicago is a tough place because, you know, they also had ugly laws. You know about this? Hmm. There's a Not book, by that phrase. There's Go a, ahead. There's a book by a historian named Susan Schweik okay. called The Ugly Laws. Okay. And uh, they were in many American cities, but Chicago had one of the toughest ones. If you had a disability uh, or you were deformed in some way, mm-hmm. you were forbidden from being seen on the streets. Wow. Um, and so, uh, in fact, the cover of the book shows a woman, you know, with disfigured eyes wearing a sign around her neck that says blind. Um, you know, the uh, you were this was to keep beggars out of the public right. sphere. It was also to protect people from having to see the unfortunates. Wow. Uh, and yeah. Chicago had one of the toughest ones, and it didn't come off the books until 1970. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You know, so that passcode thing, right? Mm-hmm. You know. I'm just saying, Chicago, it had it. It had its own funky. It, it did. Still does. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. real. You know, I didn't know about the ugly laws, but but now that you say that, I think often about the fact that to this day, you know, trucks are not allowed to drive on Lakeshore Drive. Yeah. You know, and that would make sense that that's a part that that would fall under that kind of. Uh, 
yeah. legislation, if yeah. you will. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Huh. Okay. Now I learned something. Good. Yeah, yeah. It's a, actually it's a fascinating book. The yeah. I would check that out. Yeah. yeah. Q, can we hear another, another oh, one of the poems? Okay. Yeah. Um. Okay. So I'm reading um, a poem by Miss Brooks called Art, um, which is in one of, another one of the books that she self-published called Gottschalk and the Grand Tarantelle. Um, and um, so this is, in, in my mind, one of the ways in which I, I hear Miss Brooks in terms of her own definition of her own choices, aesthetically, craft-wise, mm -hmm. contextually, and, and how she viewed art. Art can survive the last bugle of the last bureaucrat, can survive the inarticulate choirs of make-it tears, the stolid and stately places, all flabby gallantries, all that will fall. Lending our strength to keep art breathing, we doubly extend, refine, we clarify, leading ourselves, the halt, the harried, through the icy carols and bayonets of this hour, the divisions, vanities, the bent flowers of this hour. We hail what heals and sponsors and restores. Mm. <laughs> Hit me two times, guys. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a wonderful poem. <laughs> It's also a good reminder, if you think of it this way, you know, there's always been poetry. There's never been That's a time right. Right. in our consciousness That's when right. there was not poetry. And this is part of the reason why. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. We we come to poetry most often in times of crisis, right? Yep. And times of, of great joy, right? But certainly in that you know, times of crisis, you know, um, living in New York when the attacks on 9-11 happened and... Um, when I finally started to make it out of my home, I almost died in it. But uh, when I made it out and tried to make it back to grad school and back to work and seeing Alden's poems posted yeah. on the side of, yeah. of buildings, yeah. right? Um, that, you know, that's part of, of what why poetry and why we do it and, and why people still uh, believe in it and come to it. Um, and it's why we're censored and jailed. And that's true. The world. Too. That's true too. <laughs> yeah. That's real. That's real talk. Yeah. Um, you know, Miss Brooks um, has a quote that uh, art is that which endures, right? And when I talk to people, young people all the time, I, I talk to them about that, right? That many of us listen to music that's 30, 40, 50 years old. Why do you why do you still like Led Zeppelin, right? right. Robert Plant's old. Yeah. <laughs> why do you still like Led Zeppelin? Because that art is that art is that which endures, because the, the artist still speaks to us in that's some right. ways, right? Um, and I think that has an awful lot to do oh, yeah. with I mean Shakespeare with, for gosh sake. Right. So you know right. Yeah. And I think that has an awful lot to do with the the quality of the art, right? Um, and who, uh, the, the intention, right? What's going on behind, who's, who's, be, who is the, not so much who's, for whom is the art intended as much as what is the intention of the art? Right. Yeah. You know? Right. And those are two different things. Very different. You know? <laughs> Very different Say things. that again. Uh, oh God. <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> um, it's the intention of the art versus the, it's the art. for whom for, the heart is intended. Yeah. yeah, it's about the intention of the art. Because you, you can write with an audience in mind, but not necessarily thinking that you're going to have an audience, 
right? That that audience may not even be real. You could just be writing anyway. Well, you just have to you say that you're, you're writing for Hopkins. You're also aware, though, if you, if you come to the page from a place that we now inelegantly call a historically marginalized mm-hmm. place. But, you know, that's a term we hear Isn't all the nice time. Isn't that nice language? Yeah, but, but it's, it's, it's 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 come before. decode it. Yeah, you know, you come to the page from that that provisional uh, place. Mm-hmm. You're speaking, you know that you're speaking for people who can't speak for themselves right. or whose voices never got heard. True. And that's implicit in every every line of 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 her poems mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Uh, she's giving voice to yeah. um yeah. you know a very long trail of people right and yeah. crossing many barriers in doing it you know yeah allowing yeah. people to yeah. see just like in the Chicago defender you know these are these are people too you know like she's going out into the world through her ability to master the canon of of western poetry to, to, to deliver the message of this is what life is like for people like me and we're people like you under different circumstances. And it, it like, it, it, she just never ceases to amaze me. Right. And since you brought the Defender poem back up, the epiphany that the reporter experiences, you know, um, they are like people everywhere, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, is Miss Brooks's politic, right? You know that's her. You know, um, and but in 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 the act and the in the in the action of that language of the of that being the reporter's language, the reporter's epiphany while being immersed in this this town, and then to go from that to immediately to and true, they are hurling spittle and rock and fruit in right. Little Rock, right? Which you know, when people ask me about you know living in Chicago, you know when I when I travel. You know, I say Chicago is beautiful and messed up, just like where you live. Yeah. Right. You yeah. know, yeah. and that's and that's, that's right. And that's I think in part what is happening in that poem, right? It's it's a claiming of, you know, wow, Little Rock is 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 not all monsters, right? Right. But this here, this part is ugly. But he also cannot go say to his editor, right? This is what I've discovered. That's correct. Because his mission was. To, to go, go find the monsters. Go find the monsters. That's yeah. right. I like this Can, idea of voice a lot, though. I mean, who she speaks as. Mm-hmm. Um, not just to, but as. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right, that not, we talked about this kind of off, off mic a while ago, but but she's not speaking for for the academic community. Or in not, the academic not necessarily. Class, right. Right. Not speaking for the grand industrialists. Not speaking for, as Wallace Stevens spoke for, for uh, people who are a little... Perhaps more uh, fanciful, sure, and and, and their things. Uh, no, this is this is uh, this is the person I'll meet tomorrow, right, or later today, right, mm-hmm. or, or maybe I saw earlier this morning. That's this correct. Is, you might have held the door open for her. And, but and yeah. but that notion, I want to just plumb this. See, tell me if I'm wrong. But it seemed to me that what we were talking about in the other program, where she used her laureate to go out to visit the drug rehabilitation clinics and the prisons and the hospitals and the rest. This is kind of a seamlessness from the voice to the activity. Yeah, right. That that's words, correct. She knew who that cult. She knew what that culture was mm-hmm. that she wanted. That she was part of. Right. Spoke for and ennobled in the speaking. Right, which is very different 
uh, Steve, and very different in some ways from some of the from a few of the books we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. some of the poets whom I did not identify <laughs> earlier. Um, certainly, um, certainly, uh, certainly African American poets, but 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 poets of all of, of varying ethnicities, right? Um, not everyone, you know. We we still live in a moment where you know folks can ascribe to the art for art's sake, you know, yeah. mantra. And um, that has not been, uh, you know, that's not been something that I've ever, I mean, I, I know I have friends who ascribe to that mantra and that are, are very successful and, and, and God bless them, right? But um, that is not uh, an aesthetic uh, choice or a political philosophy that I've ever known, right? Ever. Um and an interviewer from my home state interviewed me a few years ago um, and asked me, you know, have all, have, do you make a conscious decision for your poems to be political? I was like, no, I don't make a conscious choice decision for my poems to be political. It's just how I see the world. Yeah, and right? I think at the edge of that, at the edge of that is that 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 great big word privilege, right? Yeah. That I can say to the listeners, as a person who's blind, I was told always, you don't belong in this room. Mm-hmm. You don't belong in this class. Right. You don't belong with these people. Right? right. And that's what makes me very, I mean, most of the things that have helped me, especially in my younger life, mm-hmm. were poets of color, yep. writers of color. Mm-hmm. I found in them that glorious mixture of resistance and uh, hopefulness. Right. That without which... They'll they'll crush your soul. It's real. <laughs> you know, that's real. I mean, it's that big old Orwell boot that they stomp on your face <laughs> right. every hour, right? right. Um, that's real. So it's real. And um, if you've lived that right. experience of um, genuine mm-hmm. um, resistance to your presence uh, and you overcome it mm-hmm. because art meant something to you, you never forget it. You never forget right. you know? it. God yeah, willing, you, you know, know, forget it. And then you can't go into the classroom and say, well, this is a poem. <laughs> um, entirely about the anapests jangling and the jingly, dingly, happily, uh, you know, Tennysonian fruit trees. But there are no real people here. No. Yeah, we get are rhymes that jingle jingle. Are you jingle. sure that anapests are not a uh, not a poetry motorcycle gang? They are. Yeah. Sons of anapests. Sons of anapests. And anapest jangling just sounds nasty. Yeah. We're all going to wind yeah. up with it in a poem. Yeah. yeah. I, again, you know, the, for the gender issue, you know, there are many. Same. It's the same thing. Same thing. It's the same thing. The exclusion that is sometimes invisible, certainly coded. Right. To this day. Yep. Right. You know. Hey, what poem did Steve have in mind? Well, I think I think maybe we might call it here because yeah, this we is just a good? great conversation. Yeah. I have a wonderful quote from her. Uh, this is from Gwendolyn Brooks. Quote, I want to write poems. I love this. I want to write poems that will be non-compromising. I don't mm. want to stop a concern with words doing good jobs, which has always been a concern of mine but I want to write poems that will be meaningful, things that will touch them. Pretty nice, guys. Pretty nice. Yeah. Pretty That's good pretty darn good. Yep. Yeah. Aren't we fortunate to have this beautiful opportunity to sit around the table talking about one of the greatest poets America has produced? Yeah, That's really. true. That's true. So we've reached the end of this second program on Gwendolyn Brooks talking about her poems, 
with a lot of light and a lot of interesting heat in this process. But it's not the end of this podcast. At this point, we invite our poets to talk about poems or issues or events of significance or importance or interest or annoyance or whatever uh, that you might want to share with our listeners. Georgia? Well, I have to say that it's been a rough week for losing people with um, the great blues man from Chicago, Otis Clay, passing away, mm-hmm. followed by Bowie, mm-hmm. two days after his 69th birthday when he dropped his last album before he checked out, and then a few days later, C.D. Wright. And um, the, the, loss of the, the, the loss of C.D. Wright before I got the chance to go to her house and say, you just have to talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. the same way like when we talked to Marvin and Bell, mm-hmm. you know, I want to call up Uncle Marvin about once a week and just have him talk to me about poetry. Carolyn Wright obviously learned a lot from Gwendolyn Brooks, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. I think there's a poet who mm-hmm. I would say there's a direct lineage in, in craft but just marvelous, and the loss of her at age 67 is is devastating. I, I can't imagine what Forrest is feeling right now, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm moved uh, to tears at these losses, and, and then to add it, her being added to the list in, in one week was really difficult for me. So I, I bring her name saying that I'd like to we'll talk about her soon. And we'll wish her well in her journey. And I'd like to read a poem by C.D. Wright. More Blues and the Abstract Truth by C.D. Wright. I back the car over a soft, large object. Hair appears on my chest in dreams. The paper boy comes to collect with a pit bull. Call grandmother and she says, well, you know, death is death and none other. In the mornings, we're in the dark. Even at the end of June, the zucchini keep on the sill. Ring grandmother for advice, and she says, oh, you know, I used to grow so many things. Then there's the frequent bleeding, the tender nipples, and the rot under the floor mat. If I'm not seeing a cold-eyed doctor, it is another gouging mechanic. Grandmother says, thanks to the blue rugs and Ellen Briscoe's elms, the house keeps cool. Well, then... You say, Grandmother, let me just ask you this. How does a body rise up again and rinse her mouth from the tap? And how does a body put in a plum tree or lie against on top of another body or string a trellis or go on drying the flatware, fix rainbow trout, grout the tile, buy a bag of onions, beat an egg stiff, Yes, how does the cat continue to lick itself from toenail to tail hole? And how does a body break bread with the word when the word has broken? Again and again with the wine and the loaf and the excellent glass of the body. And she says, even if the sky is falling, my peace rose is in bloom it's a wonderful poem. It it's, an, it's an amazing poem. I think it's I read it six times before I figured out what she was actually doing. It's a wonderful poem, Georgia. Thank you for sharing that. Well, it's yeah, my it's, pleasure. It's a moving. She was an amazing human, an amazing woman, an amazing poet, an amazing teacher, and an amazing light. 
And Miss Brooks really was fond of her and her work um, and respected her a great deal. Um, I'm, 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 Regret the fact that I never had a chance to to tell her that you know yeah. I had only I've only met her I'd only met her once um, but um, you know her work and her her legacy will live on she's in her her imprint in the centuries letters is indelible I agree Steve so uh, poetry comes to us in moments of trouble and. Lately, I've been thinking about the trouble of our nation. We seem to have, at the present moment, a chorus of voices that are intolerant and hostile mm. in a variety of ways. The other night, I watched the president deliver his last State of the Union address, President Obama. And surely he has been um, someone who has endured uh, some uh, considerable uh, opposition and much of it hostile. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got to thinking about a poem from the Vietnam War era by Robert Bly. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went back and reread it. Um, and I just want to read it. it. It suggests that America's imperial adventures uh, abroad uh, stem from a uh, latent but deep uh, American hostility um, to people who are different, right? Mm -hmm. Hatred of men with black hair. I hear voices praising Shamba and the Portuguese in Angola. These are the men who skinned Little Crow. We are all their sons skulking in back rooms, selling nails with trembling hands. We distrust every person on earth with black hair. We send teams to overthrow Chief Joseph's government. We train natives to kill presidents with blow darts. We have men loosening the nails on Noah's Ark. The State Department floats in the heavy jellies near the bottom, like exhausted crustaceans, like squids who are confused, sending out beams of black light to the open sea, fighting their fraternal feeling for the great landlords. We have violet rays that light up the jungles at night, showing the friendly populations. We are teaching the children of ritual to overcome their longing for life, and we send sparks of black light that fit the holes in the general's eyes. Underneath all the cement of the Pentagon, there is a drop of Indian blood preserved in snow, preserved from the trail of blood that once led away from the stockade over the snow. The trail now lost. So that's been on my mind. I won't argue all the specifics of the poem as to how completely accurate it might be mm -hmm. as a portrait of the American psyche, but it speaks to something that is violent and long buried in our history and yeah. still circulating now. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll just leave it there. Yeah. It's certainly been part of Bly's ongoing project right. to delineate those parts of the American psyche. Mm -hmm. This, the teeth, mother naked at last, mm -hmm. uh, the the, uh, the several 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 poems even since then. So right, really quite extraordinary. Q, anything you'd like to share with us? Um, sure. This is um, a draft of a poem of a very new poem 
Um, this will actually be its first public. Uh, oh boy! Public's first public airing. I would call this just by way of framing an act of incredible generosity, uh, right? So you're giving or, us or stupidity. Well, let's see what you get. Depending on uh, how you look. In at my it. family, they're the same. <laughs> <laughs> well, remind me not to come to your house for dinner. Um, so I'm working on a series of poems for my new and collected um, about. Um, a basement in which I spent six years during my undergraduate period with, uh, at the University of Oklahoma with uh, my two uh, best friends who are both deceased um, and who are were both um, uh, white men who are both unfortunately uh, now ancestors. And so um, this is called Basement Blur, Wisconsin. Um, and I guess you should just know that I was in a basement bar in Milwaukee. In a basement with whiskey, Zeppelin II, and cheese heads drunk on Hail Mary. Could start mess but outnumbered. This is not the underground hug I long for. Very far away and not. Milwaukee, not Norman. They are not the same. I was safe there. 2015, not 1985. Kindred demographics in beer, flannel, and guitar music. White boy infatuation with black pain. Another melaninless room. Outside those purple walls, Oklahoma history. Inside, we made our own. Six years in a drunken cellar without cracker syntax. A brotherhood. Mostly love down here, hate across street, clan on campus, a red-eyed Reagan ache. Here, it's Packers and Obama too long in charge. They okay with Jay-Z. Sport green and gold, not crimson and cream, though just as fevered. Fortune on the legs of black men they call nigger when game is done. Mm. Very nice. Thank you for sharing that. That's wonderful. Uh, my sharing is going to come out of a little different space, maybe. I want to talk about a great, unacknowledged American poet, Richard Milhouse Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bob. <laughs> so, so right at the height of, you know, as Watergate finished, you remember that the tapes were all published, and a guy in California named Jack Margolis Edited, created something called The Poetry of Richard Milhouse Nixon. Uh, it was in 1974 and published the book, which I happen to own. There's only a few out there, and the, the prices are going up all the time. But they are, it's really quite extraordinary because he captures Nixon's voice in poetry, obviously at moments of intense stress, because right. you're really talking about the whole Watergate thing. So I'll do just two poems to give you a little and these are Nixon's flavor. own words. These are, nothing has changed, no yeah. syntax, no nothing. Wow. So here's a poem called, and remember, Nixon, just to kind of say it a little bit, is probably the most confusing of all our presidents. He'd be among them. You know, you'd sure. say he's a large Asian yeah, chicken thief. <laughs> you could call him a, you know, internationalist paranoid. Yep. Right, who broke down all kinds of barriers between America and the world, right. China and Russia and yep. everywhere else. 
Um, he enshrined policies that were anathema to the right, but were forgiven yep. by the right. The Council on the Arts being yep. one, NEA and uh, environmental. Uh, he sowed stuff. the seeds for the Americans with Disabilities Act. That's right. All yeah. of the above. Yeah. So, so here is here is a poem by Richard Milhouse Nixon called "Together." We are all in it together. We take a few shots, and it will be over. Don't worry. I wouldn't want to be on the other side right now. <laughs> now, let's just admit between ourselves that that is a new note in American poetry. And just one more, and I, I, I know I'm kind of overstanding my, my license here, but one more. This is called A Million Dollars. A Million Dollars. We could get that. On the money, if you need the money, you could get that. You could get a million dollars. You could get it in cash. I know where it could be gotten. It is not easy, but it could be done. Nice. Now, what poet has ever written a poem like that? <laughs> uh, not uh, even Bukowski in his, <laughs> his most sober. <laughs> so on that note, we will finish up. Uh, this is the Talk About Poetry podcast, sponsored by Nine Mile Magazine and Nine Mile Books. We hope you've enjoyed this production. Our music is by Bob Perry, an Emmy Award-winning musician who lives and works in Syracuse, New York. Production is by Patrick McDougall, and it's all done at the World Harmony Studios. Thanks to all. Thank you.